From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Three months ago on HealthLink on Air, Dr. Stephen Thomas talked with us about the novel coronavirus and the first case of COVID-19 that was diagnosed in the United States in January. Now we're in the midst of a global pandemic that has infected almost a million and has killed more than 53,000 Americans, including some two dozen right here in central New York. Dr. Thomas is with me again today via telephone. He's the Division Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate, and he's been leading Upstate University Hospital's Incident Command response to the pandemic since the middle of March. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Well, first, let's talk about the disease COVID-19. Um, what have you learned about this disease from the patients who've been treated here at Upstate? So I think the first thing that uh, we have learned is that how these patients uh, present can be um, a little bit different than what we initially thought. So initially, we thought that this was very much like a pneumonia, so people would have fever, uh, cough, and shortness of breath. But you know what we've seen is that um, what that looks like has has broadened quite a bit, and so sometimes people don't have fever. Sometimes people don't have cough, they don't have shortness of breath, they might have a sore throat, or they might have um, generalized weakness or fatigue, uh, they may have um, uh, muscle pain. Uh, sometimes, you know, you've seen they, uh, in, in the lay press recently, uh, they may just have um, skin manifestations. So these things they call COVID toes or these sort of red, uh, painful, um, nodules on, on uh, feet. Uh, and then, and sometimes they've had even just loss of, of taste or, or smell. So I think the, the biggest thing that we've learned is that it can, uh, the disease can present in a number of different ways. I think the other thing that we've also learned is that, and it goes along with um, what I was just talking about regarding symptoms, is that it seems that a number of different organs uh, can be involved. Um, so it's not just the lungs, it can be uh, the kidney, it can be the liver, the, the brain can certainly be involved. Uh, um, people can get a, a substantial amount of um, blood clotting uh, going on in different vessels in the body. So, uh, so we're learning that this, is, uh, that this is a disease that impacts much more than just the respiratory system. So it's no longer really being considered a respiratory illness necessarily. Um, not just a respiratory illness. We still think that the that the respiratory tract is is still the predominant organ that's involved, uh, but uh, the disease does seem to involve uh, a multitude of other organs as well. Is this like anything, any other disease that you've seen before? Um, I mean, we certainly see, uh, you know, I can just speak from the infectious disease um, perspective, we, we do see diseases that um, can impact uh, uh, multiple organs at the same time. We do see diseases that it's not just the, the pathogens impact on a particular organ. So in this case, um, the viruses impact on the, you know, the lungs or the kidney or the liver or the brain, but that there, but all, but the, um, 
the person who gets infected, their immune response also can be detrimental uh, uh, to the patient. So we, we have, you know, we do see other diseases that, that kind of, um, that can cause this kind of problem for, for patients. But in, in, in terms of just the scope of the pandemic and the numbers and um, just the massive impact on a global scale that this uh, particular virus and disease has had. That I have not seen, I have not seen before. Are you able to predict how a patient is going to fare? Um, are there certain traits that, a, that particular patients have who end up surviving this and any way to predict? Well, certain people, I mean, certain people definitely do worse than others. And so unfortunately, people who are older, um, they end up in the hospital more often, they end up in the intensive care unit, they end up you know, on a ventilator, uh, and they end up um, dying at a much higher rate than, than younger people. And it's very much when you look at some of the initial data that's coming out, which includes you know, tens of thousands of patients, it's very much an incremental and stepwise increase in uh, fatality as it relates um, to age. Uh, people that have existing medical problems, um, certainly pre-existing lung disease or heart disease, obesity, uh, uh, diabetes, uh, these folks also have, um, uh, have an increased likelihood of not doing well if they are infected. But then there's also people who, you know, young healthy people who we've seen um, you know, anecdotally, but not infrequently, that they, um, you know, regular healthy young folks can also do quite poorly with, uh, with this disease as well. You mentioned about people losing the ability to smell and taste, and that just seems so odd. What, any idea what that's tied to or what's causing it? Um, well, there, it is, it is somewhat odd. Um, I'm sure the I'm sure the neurologists probably see this uh, um, more frequently than other types of physicians, but I, I certainly have not seen this uh, as frequently as it's being described for this disease. Um, you know, the reasons I think they are certainly looking into the reasons as to why this might be the case. You know, if you think about it, um, the way people get infected is they, uh, one of the ways that they can get infected is that they breathe in through their mouth or through their nose um, respiratory particles that could have, uh, and respiratory droplets that can have viral particles in it. And so if someone breathes, uh, breathes in virus and the virus sets up shop in the nose or in the nasal pharynx and it starts to replicate, it has a pretty straight shot um, uh, to the brain. And so uh, it's possible that areas that uh, uh, control our taste and our smell um, that either they're getting directly impacted by the virus or the immune response and the inflammatory response um, to infection uh, could, be causing, uh, could be causing this type of problem. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate. Let's now talk about treatment. Without proven treatments, what does the care of hospitalized COVID-19 patients consist of? So the first thing that it consists of, which may not sound like treatment, but uh, um, but I want to mention it because it's so important, is the first is, you know, 
identifying somebody who may be um, that you may, that you have the suspicion they may have been infected because you have to get them into the right clinical care setting, and by that I mean you have to isolate them in, in a private room. Um, and any of the healthcare workers or uh, people that are going to be in that room or around that room, they need to wear the proper uh, personal protective equipment. So that's the first thing. Um, this, the second is that it would depend upon the severity of, of the illness. So for some people, um, it's, uh, it's just sort of uh, supportive care. So if they're, if they're febrile, and having fever, then you can help make them comfortable and try to reduce their fever. Uh, if they're having pain, you can help treat their pain, uh, make sure that they remain uh, uh, well hydrated, make sure that their nutritional needs are, are, are being met. Um, but for people that are, are, are sicker, and so the people that may be in the intensive care unit, um, these, sometimes these folks end up being put on um, on ventilators, and so they need machines to breathe for them, either because um, they're getting too tired uh, from breathing, or they're really not able to take the type types of breaths that they need to act, you know, adequately exchange, um, uh, you know, get oxygen in, in, into their into their blood. And one of the things that the critical care physicians and the pulmonologists um, are learning is that the types of lung injuries that people have with severe COVID infections, um, they are, they are uh, somewhat unique. And I, I think, and you, you know, you'd have to talk to a critical care specialist to get, to get all the details, but they've been having to use um, sort of more innovative ways of ventilating, uh, of ventilating people, um, just in terms of how they, uh, you know, how long the inspiration is versus how long the expiration is. That's sort of just a general way to, uh, to describe it and and they actually they flip the normal ratio they kind of flip it on its head and they reverse that ratio and they've been having a good experience with that another thing that they that they sometimes need to do and it seems to be um having at least um you know in a observational way or an anecdotal way is uh um they call they do what they call proning so typically patients are on their backs when they're in bed, for example, and certainly when they're ventilated. Uh, proning is when you move the patient onto their stomach. Um, and so uh, they're having to prone people, which is not, um, uh, it's not uncommon, but it's not common, that's, that's for sure. And it seems to have a good effect with, with patients with severe respiratory illness related uh, to COVID. Uh, they also, um, you know, as I mentioned before, there's, um, observations of people getting blood clots. Uh, they have started to, um, you know, they'll do tests to see how coagulable the blood is. And uh, if, uh, if um, the patients exceed a certain threshold in these tests, then they are anticoagulating uh, uh, patients. Um, and that refers to blood clotting, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, they want to prevent those blood clots, both the big clots and the small clots. So you may have heard in the in the in the lay press, you know this uh, um, Tony-nominated Broadway star who has unfortunately lost uh, lost a leg due to a large blood clot. Um, and this is something that the doctors that we have spoken to from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak started, uh, they were very clear about this that they were seeing um, a lot of people developing both small and large blood clots. 
And so they were recommending to anticoagulate people early, which is what our, what our docs are, uh, are doing. And then there's a lot of people um, who end up getting, uh, their kidneys end up uh, uh, having problems. And so, you know, and they think that this may be not only a direct effect of the virus on the kidney, um, but that uh, um, the ki but that alterations in the immune system and alterations in in um, uh, the uh, the hemodynamic status of the patient, so the blood flow and these sorts of things, uh, how those could be negatively impacting the kidney, and people end up getting put on dialysis. So uh, so these folks are very sick. They require intensive and broad based. Um, support for um, uh, injuries to multiple uh, uh, to multiple organs. What can you tell us about the convalescent plasma project at Upstate? Yeah, that's a very exciting project. So the first thing that I would say is that the concept um, is this. So uh, you have somebody who they get infected with SARS-CoV-2, they develop a COVID illness, uh, and then they uh, thankfully recover. Um, the concept is that when they recover, their immune system has now uh, formulated uh, antibodies um, against the virus. And so we could then take the part of the blood where the antibodies are, which is the plasma, and we could give that to somebody else who is in the midst of fighting the virus and sort of give that patient's immune system a boost, give them, a, give them some help. Um, and uh, the way that, you know, theoretically what would happen is uh, instead of having to wait, instead of that patient having to wait for their body to produce antibodies, you give them a big bolus of antibodies, those antibodies bind the virus and they help the patient to recover. So we've had, um, it's been actually, you know, very nice to see in our community that um, lots and lots of people who have had COVID infections have raised their hands to be donors. Um, and so the Upstate Global Health and Translational Science Group under the direction of um, uh, Tim Endy, who's the principal investigator on the plasma project, um, they contact these people, they, they, they bring them in, they screen them, uh, they work with the Red Cross to get them scheduled to, do, to give a donation. They give a donation. Um, in Liverpool, the blood then goes to Rochester. In Rochester, all these different safety tests are done on the blood. And then when patients are identified who could benefit, uh, then we communicate with uh, the Red Cross and then Rochester, they release the plasma from Rochester to then be given, uh, given to the patients. Um, we've given convalescent plasma to more than uh, five patients at Upstate so far. Um, and it's a little too early to tell you whether it seems to work or not, but I can say that at the least, it doesn't seem to be doing uh, any harm. And, you know, COVID is not the first, is not the first infectious disease that we've treated in this, uh, in this manner. And so there is some scientific plausibility that it can, um, that it can work. And so we're hoping that, um, you know, whomever, whomever, could benefit is able to get the plasma and then we collect the information and we can pool it with other people's experience uh, and maybe get an answer uh, as to whether or not this should become a standard of, of treatment. I have a bunch more questions about antibodies because we've heard this in the news lately. This is something that the body's immune system produces, right? 
in, in the blood. So does everyone who gets sick develop these necessarily? Or only if you have a healthy immune system? Um, yeah, so that's a complicated question. So um, of the information that is available, uh, it would seem that the vast, vast majority of people who have a documented and confirmed COVID infection, uh, they do develop antibodies. Um, there's a different type, there's different phases of developing antibodies. So um, the, the kind of early initial phase of antibody is called uh, what we call an IgM antibody. And then that'll peak first, and then that starts to go away. And then around seven to 10 days, we'll start to develop our more permanent antibody, which is uh, called an IgG antibody. And that IgG antibody is what most of the tests that are on the market right now, um, what, they, what they test for. Now, the, the, the one issue is, and this is an issue related to testing, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about, um, we don't know if you can be infected by SARS-CoV-2 more than once. We don't know if you can be uh, develop COVID disease more than once. So um, this, these antibodies might not give you immunity? Uh, you know, it would, it would stand to reason that they would, but we just don't know that answer yet. And to tell somebody, if you have antibodies, you're protected, that would be premature and we really wouldn't have the data to support that uh, statement. Um, we do know that, you know, the, the community acquired coronaviruses. So these are the human coronaviruses that cause, you know, anywhere between 20 and 30% of the flu, you know, the colds that we see in the fall and winter. Um, we do know that we can be infected by them um, more than once. And so we do know that uh, you can become ill from those coronaviruses, uh, um, you know, season after season. Uh, now, whether SARS-CoV-1 or MERS-CoV, we really haven't seen that people have had multiple infections with, with those viruses. And so if, you know, if SARS-CoV-2 is more like SARS-CoV-1 than it is the community-acquired coronaviruses, then it would stand to reason that if you get infected that you should have some level of immunity for some period of time. We really just, we really don't know that. And so there's a lot of experiments that are going on out there uh, um, to, uh, to determine that. Um, so, you know, they're doing experiments in animals where they give the animals the virus and then a period of time later, they try to reinfect the animal. And, you know, some of those have shown that you cannot reinfect the animals they're resistant to infection. You know, if the convalescent plasma project were to show a clear benefit in people that receive convalescent plasma, that would speak to the protective effects of antibody. Um, so, uh, and for, for this, let me interrupt that. But for this project, you're looking for COVID nineteen patients who've recovered. They have to be over age eighteen or an correct. adult, eighteen and older. Are there any other criteria? Well, they have to have been. Uh, they have to have had a documented. COVID-19 infection. And so um, PCR have proven. Um, it may be that um, people with antibodies via an antibody test could also be eligible uh, um, to donate, but I, I think that's a little bit of a work in progress right now. 
Uh, they also have to not be sick. They have to be at least two weeks out from their infection. Um, well, let me uh, give listeners the email would be trials at upstate.edu or the phone number would be 315-464-9869 to get more information about that. So I wanted to ask you how this virus is behaving. Is this coronavirus similar to or different from other coronaviruses? Are there certain traits that you've noticed with this compared to SARS or MERS or the common cold? Um, well, certainly in terms of in terms of the common uh, the the four coronaviruses that cause you know, like I said, about thirty percent of the of of colds in, in winter. Um, you know, those community acquired coronaviruses can cause severe disease in uh, certain populations, um, certain populations of the very young or the very old, uh, but it, it does not have the, um, it does not cause the severity of disease in the numbers that, uh, that SARS-CoV-2 certainly causes. Um, you know, it depends on every day the numbers change. Uh, you know, it depends on what numbers you're looking at. But even if the mortality rate from infection were 0.5%, um, that still is five times higher than what influenza does. And so influenza, the case fatality rate is assumed to be, it's about 0.1%. And so if this is 0.5%, you can do, you can do the math. And Influenza in the United States every year kills about 35 to 40,000 people. So, again, you can do the math. That's a lot of uh, loss of loss of life. You know, the other thing. So with MERS CoV, that fatality rate is about 30 to 40%. So that's much, much higher with SARS. Um, it was about 10%. Um, but again, kind of mixing apples and oranges here in a way, because we don't know, you know, what the denominator is for all of these, uh, right, for all of these um, diseases. In terms of its transmissibility, it certainly seems, and it's different in different environments, right? Um, I mean, any, any infectious disease, you need a person who is susceptible, you need the pathogen, and then you need some way for that pathogen to uh, come in contact with the person. In some cases, like with you know, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, it's a tick. Uh, and in this case, it's human to human. Um, and so, um, but we do, but the, um, the infectiousness of SARS-CoV-2 seems to be, um, you know, anywhere from, you know, one and a half to two and a half, you know, this reproductive number that we talk about. Reproductive number is the average number of people that an infected person will infect. So if the number is two, it means I'm infected. I can, inf on average, I will infect two people. And on average, each of those two people will infect two people. And you can see how the numbers would increase um, rapidly. Well, for influenza, it's around one. So, so this is the bad scenario of respiratory infection that is um, more transmissible and more deadly than what we see with seasonal uh, seasonal flu. Um, and I mean, you, you know, we have 300 and what do we have? 320, 330 million people in the United States. 
uh, with the case fatality rate of 0.5%, um, if you know 100 million people are infected, again you can do the math. That's a lot of that's a lot of uh, loss of life. Now you said human to human transmission, but in early March we heard about a zoo tiger that tested positive for COVID-19, and now we've heard about infected house cats. Does that yeah. does that worry you as a professor uh, of microbiology and infectious disease? Um, it's uh, well. So again, this is not this is not an uncommon uh, situation. So um, we know that. I mean, ten to fifteen thousand years ago, we started to domesticate animals, and when we started to when humans started to domesticate animals, you know, for labor and and food. Um, that's when diseases started to be passed back and forth between uh, humans and animals. And, you know, we can think of multiple diseases, but even if we just stay within, um, you know, the coronaviruses and stay within the severe coronaviruses, we know that both um, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV both had animal reservoirs associated with them. And um, the same uh, seems to be true for SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, it's also, uh, and you know, those are animals in in uh, in the wild. And so, let's say the, the average Central New Yorker doesn't care too much about that. They care about the house cat or the you know their dog. Um, you know, dogs and cats carry diseases that can be transmitted to people, and it's 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 common that you know, as an infectious disease physician, that we see diseases transmitted from people from animals to people. Um, and so can, an, can a cat or a dog be infected? Uh, let's just say cat. Um, yes, that's not surprising to me. Do they really pose a risk to, uh, do they pose a risk to people? Um, I don't think that's, I don't think that's really clear yet. I would probably, um, I mean, the CDC has guidance on this and I would agree with the CDC's guidance that you know if the animal is is ill, that animal should probably be um, you know quarantined and and taken care of like you would a family member who would be ill. And you should uh, try to limit its uh, ability to roam around the house. You should uh, you know make sure it's uh, you know fed and cleaned and kind of stays in a single environment. Uh, you should bring it to the vet um, and. Uh, you should wash your hands. You should not let the kids play with the animal <laughs> while the animal's sick. Uh, you know, just kind of common sense sorts of things. Do you expect that this is a seasonal virus that's that we'll see sort of a tapering down over the summer, but that there's a risk of another wave hitting in the fall? Yeah, this has been a common question. So some people have said, um, or, and made the observation, uh, and, and, and a lot of it's based in, you know, science and data that, oh, when it gets, when it gets warmer, when there's more sunlight, when it's more humid, um, this has effects on the virus, and this, uh, you know, will prevent the virus from traveling as far if somebody is infected and were to cough, the droplets will drop quicker um, compared to types of environments you have in winter. Um, you know, that seems, I think on the surface that that seems to make uh, sense, but um, when you look around the world right now, there are lots of places that have lots of warm, hot, humid places that have 
uh, COVID circulating right now. So I, that argument doesn't hold as much weight with me as it may. But there's a kind of sociological um, um, and epidemiological impact of a change of seasons as well, which is people, um, people there are lots of activities that uh, uh, physically distance people from one another, right? So when it's nice out and it's not raining and it's sunny and it's warm, people get outside and they do lots of activities. And so they get out of the cramped space of being in a home where it's very difficult to physically distance from, uh, from one another. Um, so, you know, we'll, we will, uh, I guess we will see, um, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking right now that this is gonna be something as sort of uh, cut and dry as influenza, for example, which, you know, between October and May is when we see most, if not all of our influenza. And then on the off season, we don't see very much. So we'll, we, we will see, but I'm, I'm still pretty measured right now in my optimism that this is gonna go away in the, uh, in the winter. Well, I'd like to ask you about the development of a vaccine because I've heard some health officials say we won't gain control over this virus until we have an effective vaccine. Is, is that true? Well, yeah, so, um, you know, go, uh, go back to my earlier comments where for an infectious disease to continue to propagate and to continue to be transmitted, you need the pathogen and you need a susceptible person. So um, the pathogen has traveled all around the world in record time now. And so it's very unlikely that the pathogen is going to go, uh, is going to go away. I mean, the vast majority of people that, uh, let's say that 0.5% case fatality rate, that means 99.5% of people who get infected um, live and have the ability to pass the pathogen on to somebody else. And then if you think about, um, I mean, you can look at the, the, the results of those antibody tests, at least the preliminary results of the antibody tests that the governor, um, you know, that the governor did, uh, ordered, and just looking at the preliminary estimates from today's briefing, Central New York had a 1.3% positivity rate, which means 98% plus of people in Central New York didn't, um, uh, have not been infected. So you take a pathogen that's not going away and you take a huge amount of the population that's still susceptible, and that means you can continue to have lots of infections. So how can you impact that? Um, impact that by trying to reduce the number of susceptible people and the best way to do that is through is through vaccination um, and so uh, you know some people were initially thinking about well maybe if there's so many infections that the, you know the, the population level immunity or herd immunity would be significant enough to um, prevent transmission or slow transmission. I think it's pretty clear, especially in central New York, that, you know, usually you need about 70 or 80 percent herd immunity, um, meaning 70 or 80 percent of the population has been exposed and infected. Um, you need that level of herd immunity to drive down transmission. And as you, as I just mentioned, we're, you know, we're at 2 percent, <laughs> you know, so how are you going to make up that Delta um, vaccination would be would be the way to do that. I mean, you could even look at New York City. I mean, they had about a 25% infection rate 
based on this, you know, antibody study, that still means three out of four people were not infected. So, um, yeah, so I think vaccination is probably going to be the best uh, hope that we have of reliably um, and season, you know, in a season by season of uh, being able to um, reduce the number of infections. And I've heard them say uh, 12 to 18 months to create a vaccine, a minimum 12 to 18 months. So this is not something we're going to have this fall, right? Uh, no, I anticipate that there will be there will be probably a number of clinical trials that are being conducted. So a number of experiments in human volunteers that are being conducted. I imagine that will happen, but it just takes you know it takes uh, time and it takes process to demonstrate that something is sufficient for wide scale use. Right? I mean, you have to. You have to prove that it's safe. You have to prove that it does what it's supposed to do. And um, that can be very difficult. And then once you prove it, you have to be able to make a couple hundred million doses of it. Uh, so it has to be, a, it has to be scalable. Um, so all these things just take, they take a lot of time. So it's even if someone created a vaccine, if this virus mutated, would that make the vaccine not effective? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question and people are looking at that. So, um, so think of something like influenza, which has a lot of drift every year in terms of the genetic fingerprint of the, of the, you know, the predominant viruses that are um, virus strains that are being transmitted around the world. Um, they do change, which is why you need a new flu vaccine every year. Um, you know, SARS-CoV-2 does not seem to have that amount, that level of mutation. Uh, so it seems to be, you know, after five months now, it seems to be pretty stable. Um, and it seems that the mutations that they are um, identifying in the, what we call the, the genome, right? The, the viral genetic sequence, uh, the mutations that they are seeing are not really relevant. They're not really that important. So the best case scenario would be that this is a stable virus that we're able to uh, make a vaccine and that vaccine will um, successfully immunize people against, um, you know, the multiple year, you know, the multiple years of, of uh, COVID viruses, which will be circulating. Can you make a prediction for what life will look like in central New York three months from now, six months from now? Geez. Um, well, I think, I do think, I mean, it's a little cliche, but I do think uh, there's going to be a new normal, right? There have been events in this country's history where the country was not the same after that event, right? And, um, you know, we can think of recent events like that. Uh, so, you know, transportation was never the same and security was never the same after 9-11, right? And people... Uh, it was just the new way of we had to that we had to live our lives, and I I feel that um, and believe that the same is going to be true for the uh, the post the you know post COVID nineteen, and maybe there'll be a COVID twenty and a COVID twenty one. Um, I, I think that we're going to have to we're going to be establishing a new normal. So what does that 
what does that look like? Do I think we're not going to open up society again? No, I, I think we're going to do that. Um, you know, does it mean that people might be wearing masks for a while? Uh, that's possible. Does it mean that there may not be, you know, we might not be jumping right back into 80,000 people in a stadium? That's, you know, that's possible. Um, or, you know, does it mean we're going to have to, people are going to have to be much more vigilant than they were about washing their hands and about covering their cough and sneezed and, and people being, uh, you know, the workplaces being much more strict about people coming to work if they're sick. Uh, doesn't mean we're always going to have to have be ready for COVID in the hospital. I mean, I, I think that these are some very practical, that very practical things that people are going to have to, you know, um, think about. Is it going to change how we greet one another? You know, that's possible. That's possible too. Uh, so I, I do think I do think this is one of those things that we're going to have to live with. This is not going to be a, oh, remember when. Um, I think that this is now, until we get a vaccine solution and until that vaccine um, is mass produced and, and uh, has high, you know, high penetration into the community, uh, I think that we're going to be um, always, always living with uh, uh, COVID in the community. Well, thank you to Dr. Stephen Thomas the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.